0: Okay, we are going to pick it up in James chapter 3. James chapter 3 verse 13. So the last time we, I, that I shared, we talked about, we focused in on, on the tongue and things regarding um, trying to get hold of that. But now reading from verse 13 of James 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which came down, which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in verse 13 starts out with a question. Who among you is wise? And understanding. So it's it's not a yes or a no question. But it's a question of introspection. A call to introspection. Who among you is wise and understanding? So it's a call to look at ourselves. Do I consider myself wise and understanding? So after he issues this call of introspection... As to wise and understanding, he says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So remember what this book James is doing. Rather than saying good works saves us, he is saying that those who are saved are called to good works. That those of us who have the Spirit of God working in our hearts, it should call us into good works. So he says, let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. So if we think that we are wise and understanding, this should be a measure by which to gauge it. Good behavior in deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. So in other words, wisdom and understanding are manifest again through good works. Just as faith, he said, should be demonstrated through works, not that we are saved by works, but it is a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in our hearts. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. It is so important for believers to manifest good works, to manifest good deeds, and it's not at all unreasonable to have a regular practice which calls us to it. That can be the outflowing that can be in a church group, it can be in a campus group, it can be with a group that you invite to your room to do things on a regular basis. But it is something that's good and important to have. Then he says his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Look what he says is an outcome of wisdom. He says it's gentleness. And then he gives a contrast, because remember he had this call to introspection, who among you is wise and understanding? He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earth, earthly, natural, and demonic. So he says that, that there is a way to think that I have wisdom and understanding. But if I harbor jealousy and selfish ambition in my heart, I'm being arrogant and lying against the truth. So let's bring this back. You know, how do you excel? How does one excel in one's career? How do you do well if you're not driven to do well? How do you, how are you successful, say, as an engineer or as a, as a physician? Or as a college student. How do you do well? Without some ambition there. And he talks about a selfish ambition. And a jealousy. You know I have not been free. Of jealousy in my career. But what the scriptures have been able to do. Is to expose it to me. And it is absolutely insidious. How far I've gone. And the things that I've, I've just thought about in my heart. You know, when I was a, a, a young assistant professor, and I, wasn't, you know, I started as an assistant professor when I was 28 years old. And I had a lot on my plate. I had a, a wife. I had two children. And I was starting out as an assistant professor. And they sort of give you a credit card to buy stuff for your lab. And they say, go. You're on your own. We had no experience teaching. I had no experience teaching other than doing a couple of years as a TA in a laboratory, which just meant I walked around and made sure that distillation apparatus were properly sealed. But there was really no formal teaching. And here I was being dropped into a, a lecture hall with hundreds of undergraduates. I had no idea how to do this. You'd think that you know, here they'd give you some level of instruction, at least a one-week course prior to the semester beginning. I had zero. They gave us nothing. You'd think that at least they'd give you a pamphlet. Here's how you should organize and structure your class. No. All they give you is a textbook. It's a thousand pages. They say you have two semesters to teach all of this. Well, how do I paste this thing out? There's nothing. There's nothing. So what you do is you take the thousand pages and you divide it by the number of lectures that you have over the year. You say, okay, I know about how many pages I have to cover. And so you have no education in this. You'd say, well, they must teach you how to write grant proposals. No, they teach you nothing. They don't teach you how to write grant proposals. In fact, later on during the year, they'll have you know, one day, a one-day, half a half-day workshop on how to write a proposal. But you've got to start writing proposals from day one. And all these things going on, all these barrage of things coming at, at you. And I remember that when I started doing things and we started getting some success in publishing papers, that there was a, a, another professor that was about a year behind me at another institution. And he published something that we were working on ourselves but had not yet published it. So you can imagine that you work for a while on something, then somebody else publishes it. And he's a year behind me. Now, we had done some other things, too. But you can imagine how that would feel, right? And so you can't publish what you're doing anymore. Or if you publish it, it's got to have a different slant. It's got to be somewhat different. And I remember him, and then he just was on an absolute roll. And he was succeeding again and again in publishing this derivative of it, it, that one, this one, that one, this one, that one, so much so that we couldn't even get a foothold to break in. And I remember never verbalizing this, but entertaining this thought in my mind, and as it's been written that imagination without the control of God can be a bitter taskmaster. And I, I imagined, wouldn't it be neat if this guy just died? <laughs> Isn't that a terrible thought? You know, I didn't know him. I never met him. But at least then this problem would go away. You see how terrible jealousy can be. It can really be so evil. I was just a regular guy. I loved the Lord and everything. So, so this, this happens to believers too. If you've ever had these sort of thoughts, maybe this can add comfort that you're not in this alone. But he says that this wisdom that you have is not from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. And then it, I went to a... a chemistry society meeting and I met the guy he seemed like a nice guy but he was still just you know dominating in this area and then a few years went by and I invited him to the university to come and speak and then I invited him over to our home for dinner and they came over for dinner nice guy and I got talking to him about his family and about, and about his, his wife and different things that were going on and some things that he had gone through recently. Just the pains in his family because though he was a young guy, his wife had had an aneurysm. You know, most people die when they've had aneurysms. But she didn't die and she was able to pull through this thing. And he had a couple of small children at the time. And I remember sharing the Lord with him. He said, you know, I've been thinking a lot more about the Lord lately. And through that conversation and other things going on in this life, it kind of brought him back to the church and the city in which he lived. And so I was able to have something that I could place into this young man's life. That at one point I was thinking, well, maybe if he just died, it would all be taken care of. Jealousy can be like that. And then I read what I quoted to you before by C.S. Lewis, and he talks about how to overcome this, this feeling of jealousy. And it's that you rejoice in the other person's accomplishment as much as you would rejoice as if you had accomplished that. Isn't that an interesting thought? That I rejoice with them in this accomplishment that they have. As much as I would rejoice as if I had this. So now I have this little practice of sending out personal letters every week. Four or five personal letters a week. Handwritten. Not email, just handwritten where I take a card and I write something. And I actually write an address and put a stamp on it. And place it in the mail. And these letters are often to people where I read in the literature because I spend every Saturday reading the chemical literature, which sounds boring, but it's really not. It's really fascinating. And I see these amazing accomplishments of my colleagues around the world. And I think, wow, this is terrific! What a clever idea! And I write them a note. Great job. I just read your work. I mean, this was really clever. I wish I had thought of that. I rejoice with you. And it gives me a level of joy in their accomplishment. It really helps me to celebrate with them. Once in a while, I get a handwritten message back. More often, I get an email back of Thanks. And it immediately builds a friendship. Because you don't get many of these in life. So, to learn to rejoice with the other party as much as you would rejoice yourself. When people, when colleagues of mine receive big awards, to send them a note saying, great job, I'm so proud that I know you. And that I can tell people that I'm your friend. is something to share their joy with them. Breaks the jealousy. Because he says that if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, you're becoming arrogant and you're lying against the truth. This breaking of jealousy... He says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition helps me to curb a selfish ambition as well. You see, he couples this jealousy with selfish ambition. Sure, I have goals for my career. I still have goals for my career. Things that I want to accomplish. Projects that I want to advance and complete and see work. See the, the fruit of our labors. But as I can learn to rejoice in another person's success, it keeps that bitter jealousy from coming in. And then the ambition that I have stops being selfish. That I can rejoice in my colleagues as well. You know, it's calmed my heart so much as a researcher, as a faculty member. That I can rejoice in another person's success. It curbs the selfish ambition. The same can happen for you as a student. That you rejoice in another person's success. You know someone who did really well in a class. Rejoice with them. Say, I am so happy for you in the way you've done. That's terrific. That is really good. Rejoice with them. And what it helps you to do is to put your career in a proper context. It keeps you from having a selfish ambition. You have ambition not just for yourself, but for everybody around you that you want them all to succeed with you. You want them coming up with you. This selfish ambition, he says, that that it's earthly, it's natural so this is what is natural among us, this jealousy, this selfish ambition. It is natural among humankind. But he says it's also demonic. It's something that will destroy us. This jealousy and selfish ambition is natural to the Earth. But he says, it's not God, God didn't place it on this Earth. It came from Satan. It's demonic. That means that it destroys lives. It destroys lives. I have seen this. I have seen this in colleagues of mine. Young colleagues who, by every count, should have done so well. By every measure, when we started out in the gates together, they should have gone far further than me and far faster than me based on the credentials and how much they knew. The wealth of information and the talent that they had. But because there was this bitterness and this jealousy, I saw them shooting torpedoes at other people in their careers. Now, how do you shoot a torpedo at somebody? Well, in science, it's very easy. Because there's something called peer review. So when I send in a paper for publication, who says, yes, this is worthy of publication, or this was a wrong interpretation or not? Who says? It is my peers. I don't choose them. The editors of the journal chooses, okay, here's other people in the same area. Let me send it to them. They'll evaluate. They write an anonymous review, which goes back to the editor and then comes back to me. That's the way the system works. Grants work the same way. My whole laboratory runs off of grants. Who evaluates the grants? My peers, the people with whom I'm competing, in a sense. I send it to the granting agency. The granting agencies generally don't have the in-house expertise to make the evaluation. They send it out to my peers. And I evaluate others' papers just as they evaluate mine. I evaluate others' proposals as they evaluate mine. They shoot torpedoes. The way you can shoot a torpedo is to not fund somebody's work because you don't like the competition. Or make it very difficult for them to publish their paper by requiring that they do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all these other things in order to get that paper published, which is going to slow them down by a year or two. That's a torpedo. There's other ways. You can speak evil of another person's work or another person's career. I've seen that too. And what I've seen is that this scriptural pattern is there. Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. You speak negatively of a colleague's work. Many will speak negatively of your work. And it says that what you sow, you don't get back equally. It says that it will pour out into your lap, overflowing. The principle of sowing and reaping is you plant one seed of corn. You get 10,000 kernels back. Sowing and reaping is you sow a little bit, you get a lot back. You sow a little bit of good favor, a little bit of goodwill, a little bit of shared joy in another's success. You receive a lot back. You sow a little bit of negativeness, a little bit of bad will, a little bit of bad words, you receive a lot back. It is so utterly dangerous. He says the source of all of this is from demons. Demons have brought this to this earth. God didn't. It's demonic. It is natural now. It has become a natural part of this earth. It is earthly. It is natural. It is demonic. So you see this is tears that are sown all through us. And he says that we need to get a command over this. Verse sixteen, for where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. You see where this selfish ambition and jealousy are, things become disordered. There's chaos. And, and and we try to, you know, inject this bad thing, this bad thought into another's mind concerning a colleague. But what happens is we don't realize we are sowing seeds of our own destruction. I have seen this in colleagues. Now, I've been a faculty member now for, I'm in my 21st year. So I've seen careers start with mine and seen how they progress. When you're a bad guy, bad things happen to you in your career. I've seen this. Life has a way of rewarding because the scriptural principles are true. And it says there's disorder in every evil thing. You know, I I had a colleague at one point, and I saw him sowing these seeds, sowing these seeds early on in his career. And then, 18, 19, 20 years later, he had gone to another university, I had gone to another university, so we were far apart. One of his colleagues came to visit the university, and I, and I asked, I said, there's a friend of mine in your department, so-and-so, tell me how he's doing. He said, i, I got nothing to say about that guy. There was not a good word to say about him. Now, I knew the seeds that this guy was sowing early on in his career. And now, 20 years later, his colleagues, totally different colleagues, had nothing, nothing good to say about this person. Couldn't even tell me anything about this person. You'd think, you'd say, oh, he's doing all right. You'd think you could at least say that. Nothing. Because... There's disorder, and every evil thing is sown with it. Then he says in verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So he says in verse 17, But the wisdom from above, he says, Now let me tell you about what God's wisdom is like. Wisdom from above is first... So he puts the first thing as purity. Then peaceful and so on. But he says the first thing is purity. Purity is not external. Of everything on this list, the only thing that's internal here is purity. He says, wisdom from above is first pure Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Everything else on this list is external. It starts with purity of heart. First of all, God has to get a hold of my heart. Of my heart. Once he has hold of my heart, then these other things can flow. I can try to do a good work, but unless he's got hold of my heart, I haven't hit the first thing. He says the wisdom from above is first pure. Got to get something in my heart that is not inherent within me. It's something outside of me. Because inherent within this earth is jealousy and selfish ambition, which brings all sorts of disorder and every evil thing. Every evil thing, he says in verse 16, stems from jealousy and selfish ambition. Every evil thing stems from selfishness and from jealousy and selfish ambition. He says the way you have to start is first with your purity. Then what flows is peace, gentleness, reasonableness, something that's reasonable. You think about, what does it mean to be reasonable? Um, my footnote says, for reasonable, willing to yield. You know, that, that you, we, we do things that are reasonable for the offense. Reasonable for the offense. That, that when you have to execute some measure where, where you're in a position, that you do things that are reasonable. No, I, I, was, I was on the, on the, board, on, on the board of an uh, organization, and one person in the company wasn't doing things very well, and the board wanted to reprimand this person. And, you know, I and was saying, you know, such and such should happen. You know, Everyone was, was giving out their ideas. And then one guy who was in human resources, had served in the Air Force in Human Resources for many years and now works in a a very large company in the area of Human Resources, said, what I've learned is that what you do is you give the minimum punitive uh, 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 punishment to make the effect known. So what he was doing was calling us back. He said, look, lighten up. We'll talk to the person as we've talked to them before, and if we have to do something, we want to do the very minimum to them that we have to do. So, you you know, just I want to bash the guy. This is reasonableness. To have a, a punishment that's commensurate with the offense. Full of mercy and good fruit. So when you're doing it, be full of mercy and good fruit unwavering and without hypocrisy. Turn to Luke chapter 6 and we're going to close with this passage. Luke chapter 6 is this call for us to remember to do good to others. Luke chapter 6 verse 27 is this call to mercy. But I say to you who hear love your enemies do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Look what it says. It says, you know, you're to take even the people who are mean to you, and you are to pray for them. You're to do good to them. Somebody does me wrong, it specifically says, I am to do good to them. In fact, I don't have to do good to anybody, except to those who do wrong to me. This is the commandment. That to those who do wrong to me, I am to do them good. Do good to those who hate you. So I'm to identify those who hate me and do them some act of good. What an amazing thing it calls me to. Those who hate me. oh, It's not, well, that guy, you know, I, he goes his way and I go mine. The Bible says if that guy hates you, you are obliged to do them an act of good. Because that is going to make you like them. Then he says, down in, in uh, verse 35, But love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in your return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So he says that whatever you give, you're going to reap many fold over. It's going to come flowing over in your lap. And so what he calls us to do is to be pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy in dealing with people. In this way, it's going to keep us from this really insidious thing of jealousy and selfish ambition. So I can be driven to succeed in my career in a good way if I remember that I rejoice equally well in my successes as in the successes of the others around me. And I show them some act that expresses to them that I rejoice with you. And that keeps them the selfish ambition and the jealousy from coming in. And so when I see these colleagues of mine do something amazing, and I get excited. I say, wow, that is really good. Good job. Good job. Let me, let me see if I can... I can even connect you with somebody who can take it a step further. So in other words, you, you know, you need this piece of instrumentation to show this. I'll call them up I'll say, hey, you know, you might want to get together with so-and-so. You know, they and they can do this on you. Do something to bless them. And then what happens is, it has this effect where you place a big funnel over your head and all this blessing starts pouring in. This is the way to get that funnel effect where all this stuff starts coming in on you you do good and goodness is poured into this funnel but if we do evil evilness is poured into this funnel let's pray father thank you thank you father for the truth of your word that You give graciously to Your children. Have the abundance of Your mercies. And You call us to walk in something that comes down from heaven rather than that which is earthly, natural, and demonic. Father, I pray for these young people to walk in that which would keep them free from jealousy, and selfish ambition that would destroy their lives and their careers which they're working so hard and desiring so much to see go well father work in their lives i pray father your blessing be upon us and i thank you my lord in the name of jesus amen